こんにちは皆さんビジネスサクセスジャパンのポッドキャストへようこそ Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan's specific communication skills, especially in business. While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you want to see more episodes in the future, be sure to subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review, since it really helps other people find the show who could benefit from it as well. And of course, if you have any comments or suggestions for improvement, please feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com or send me a voice message using the link in the description of this episode. Alright, so today's episode was actually one of my favorite ones to record so far, though it's a little bit different than what I've been trying to do up until now. I've purposefully tried to shy away from current events to focus on more evergreen content that people can listen to at any time, but it's becoming pretty clear that the current COVID 19 situation will be with us for a while longer, and its after effects will be pretty significant. So, today I'll be chatting with Bonson Lam and his research on what trends are likely to emerge as travel resumes, both during and post virus. I hope that this can provide some inspiration for the more entrepreneurial minded people among us. Bonson is currently a market development and strategy manager in Australia and a consulting partner at Japan Travel. He has a strong background in economics and strategic management. As well as a passion for volunteer work and meaningful travel, which you'll hear a little bit about in this conversation. But before we get into the interview, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the Japanese word for foreigner, gaijin. 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 This time, I want to go over a word that you'll hear mentioned a few times in this conversation. Ryokan. A ryokan is just a traditional Japanese style inn, probably most similar to a bed and breakfast. If you ever get a chance to stay in one, you should definitely take advantage of it, though you may want to do a little bit of research before going because there are quite a few unspoken rules that would probably be helpful to know ahead of time, especially if they have an onsen or hot spring baths. I want to quickly go over a pronunciation note as well. As you may already know, instead of having direct R and L sounds in Japanese, they use a sound that's somewhere in between, as you can hear in ryokan. Pay attention to how you pronounce the words ro and lo. Depending on your accent, ro likely involves moving your lips, while you probably place the tip of your tongue on the tips of your front teeth to pronounce lo. In Japanese, the equivalent sound is made by placing the tip of your tongue to the spot behind your front teeth where your gums and teeth meet. So it's not ryokan or ryokan, but ryokan. I'm not a native speaker, so my pronunciation is not perfect, but knowing this distinction should still help improve yours. All right, so let's get into today's conversation. Would you mind briefly introducing yourself to my audience, please? 
Yeah, hi, my name is Bonson Lam. I'm the Foundation Regional Partner for Japan Travel. I was one of the uh, Foundation Partners because we started in, after the tsunami in 2011 as a way to help bridge regional Japan with the rest of the world. Through that role, I've, I've become a bit of a journalist, but also a consultant to the travel industry. I've got a background in economics and aviation management. It's just great to be able to meet different people and to learn from them, but also to, to connect different parts of the world together through my role at Japan Travel. Yeah, that's awesome. So were you actually in Japan during the tsunami then? Good question. Um, I, was, I was in Sydney, actually, and it was the evening. It was a Friday afternoon, but by the time I heard about it, it was Friday evening, and mm. I actually got a call from my manager at the time saying, oh, look, you know, there's this massive disaster happening. Are you okay? Have you checked it out? So that, that's how I actually heard about it from second hand um so i wasn't in japan when the tsunami hit but what happened was because it happened in march and six months later we were offered to go to japan to to the tsunami area in sendai and it was the minister who who married my wife and i my wife's japanese and so at that time my wife didn't want to go, but she was worried that it would be overwhelming, you know, disaster mm-hmm. scenes that you see on TV. But when we got there, we, we were just visiting um, temp- people in temporary housing and we would give out chocolates and food. Not that they needed the food, but, but it was a way to get in and to um, have a chat of the locals and what happened was that you know even though we went there to help them and to encourage them we felt it was the other way around and, and the reason why was they said you know six months on after the tsunami um and the world had moved on to, mm-hmm. to something else so it was it was really touching for them that, you know, we, we haven't forgotten about them, that they said, thank you for coming all the way from Australia and not forgetting about us. And they didn't really need the food that we were bringing. It was more about the friendship. So, you know, people, a lot of them, they might have lost their husband or wife or, or their grandparents. So after that, we wanted to do something more long-term because we had to go back to Australia. So that led to Japan Travel being founded. So then was that transition more of a natural, inadvertent um, switch in careers? Because it's quite a big contrast to move into travel versus econ and aviation. Uh, yes, to, to some degree. I, I still have a role in the, in, in, in the economic side. It's, it was more about how do I use the skills I had in, in, in economics and consulting in, in a travel space? So originally Japan Travel was about telling the stories of 
the people that we met in Sendai or the people that we've met in another part of Japan who was a third generation sake maker and you know we wanted to tell their story so other people don't forget about them in the, in the same way that that the lady spoke to us in Sendai so originally it was it was yes it was travel but it was more about us telling their story so that other people can replicate what we were doing and visit that place and have the same kind of human connection that I had. So I, d- I didn't really think about it as travel. It was more about how do we build community and then the travel just happened as a result of it because they read the story about the third generation sake maker or, or the, the doll maker or, or, or some other really interesting local story and they wanted to go and by going they travel so it just evolved very naturally even though i you know it it was quite different to economics for example if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah so then what does your work look like now versus back then when you were telling people stories versus now you're kind of trying to share japan with people in a more recreational sense I think there's, there's two elements. So one is still about the storytelling and, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy it and I learn from them. So I always like to continue that and, and it keeps, keeps me fresh because I learn from them. And I suppose in, in the travel space, it's often about what, what's unique or what's new or what's different or what's fresh. So you're always looking for something that's different because it, it is a quite crowded market. And then I suppose the economics and I suppose marketing to some extent that, that helps in, in us working out how to market them to the world or work out back on the meetings I have in Australia or other countries as to what people's needs or desires are with, with travel and why do people travel and working out if we could meet their needs. So I think the, the, the storytelling and the, and the reporting and journalism side goes hand in hand with, with the, the economics and consulting side. I think, I suppose with the economics and consulting side, a lot of it is, is also working out if somebody has something to offer in a small town is there a big market for that product you know whether it's a cooking class or or or, you know a a visit to the sake brewery working out you know how do they fit in the big world and going back to what you said about looking at why people travel and meeting their needs in that area you told me that you're doing some research about travel given the current situation. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really thankful for, for that question. So because we, we've spent, I think, you know, since 2011, good seven, eight years building the, the travel market and, and creating new products that, either were previously unavailable or weren't delivered very well. So it was fantastic to see that growth. But, but I think 
a lot of people in the, in the industry as well as myself were quite shell-shocked, for want of a better word, to, to see what happened mm-hmm. this year. But then it was also an opportunity to see, because everybody had, had changed in, in different ways because of what, what happened this year, but what does it mean going forward and how do we get a sustainable pathway back to travelling again? So that, that was a lot of my, my motivation. And, and secondly, given I've done a fair bit of in the, in the aviation consulting side, route management and route development. So the, the idea is, is how to help airlines and airports grow new routes and new flights and working with them to see where the demand is going to come from and, you know, from what cities to what other cities. So what, what I did in the research was to look at how some of the earlier countries that recovered first what they were saying about you know what the travel world looks like um post pandemic mm-hmm. and it in the one article that came to my attention was uh based in china done by a group called dragon trail interactive talking about chinese traveler sentiment in March 2020, as they they, uh, came out of that crisis at that time. So things that kind of really spoke to me was some of the demographics that they looked at. So one of the things they said was that travellers born in the 1990s in China were most optimistic about when the recovery will happen and more likely to travel sooner than older people. Um, They also are more likely to have more budget to travel. So I I took that point in two ways. So good to learn what the sentiment is in in China and and what does it mean for potentially Chinese tourists going into Japan. And then the other thing that I took from that was if that was the finding in China, then digging a little bit more deeply as to why that's the case and if I were to apply it to the the Japanese market. So for Japanese nationals traveling within Japan or out of Japan. So, you know, can I apply the same findings to Japan and, you know, what does it mean when I apply it to the Japanese situation? So then looking at China as an example, has there, have you been able to find any data about, because that generation would, tend to be more of the millennial generation yes yes absolutely so mm-hmm. yes and, and and i suppose uh, uh, you know the context of a millennial in, in china would be a little bit different to other countries mm-hmm. even though you know we all in the same period of time but i think one thing that that really spoke to me was um you know what makes that generation unique in china and one of the things that got me thinking was that that was a generation that kind of born into China when China was really booming. So it it is pretty much effectively a generation that, that really never saw uh, a recession, you know, or or, or poverty or relative poverty compared to, you know, their parents or grandparents. And then, you know, I started thinking about 
the conversations I had with different generations of people in Japan and why are certain people more optimistic than others and why are some people, you know, more willing to spend while other people are more conscious of, of saving and, and definitely, you know, having a generation that, that's born into a growing economy and seeing very optimistic outlook, they're the ones who tend to be, it's easier for them to open their wallet and travel while other people, even if they have the same amount of money because of their experiences going through a depression or a recession or, you know, in, in Japan, it was a lost decade, you know, looking at how does those economic backgrounds as, as people grow up impact their, their propensity to travel. And so what, what I kind of did was see if there was a, a generation in Japan that's similar to the millennials in, in, in China. And so um, looking back into Japanese economic history, what kind of spoke to me was that people who grew up post uh, the World War II um, all the way up to the 1970s, that was a time when Japan really uh, grew very quickly. So they are the, the generation that a little bit similar to, to the Chinese who were born in the 1990s. So it's almost the, the Japanese equivalent of the Chinese boom. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, if they, they had people who have got a high propensity to travel, how do we um, work with that demographic? And, you know, also looking for people who are examples in that uh, demographic, given I'm not in that demographic myself, you know, does people like the prime, current Prime Minister Abe, given he's in that generation, does that, you know, mean that his outlook on life is more optimistic than someone who was born in the, or grew up in the lost decade, you know, after the bubble or, or before him? That was quite an interesting hypothesis for me to, to see how you know, the, the economic condition in, in where the, this generation grew up and how it affected their propensity to travel. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It'll be especially interesting to me as an American, obviously, to see how it pans out for my generation, just because my generation in the States is notorious for having wanderlust, for wanting to travel as much as possible, mm-hmm. for getting experiences. But at the same time, we're strangely, well, we're notoriously risk averse when it comes to money because of our experiences with the dot-com bust and then the housing bust and then the Great Recession. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out as well. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, that's also one of the points I was covering in my research, interestingly, is given what's happening to the world economy at the moment and we know a lot of people lose their jobs or lose their um, savings you know what what does it mean for for travel going forward especially if you have a generation that that has this um, real interest and excitement about traveling how do you reconcile you know the two the sense of adventure and not having um, the money or, or feeling a little bit burnt by, you know, the housing bust or the 
dot-com bust. You know, how do we reconcile that in the same generation? And so one of the things that I thought about is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a program that, that's in Japan and in Australia and a few other countries. It's, it's called the, the Working Holiday Program, where so you can go and live in another country for a year. Um, you get this Working Holiday Visa, which allows you to work in that country and get an income so you can continue to live there and travel. So one of the things that I thought because of the current situation where people don't have money but they want to travel is that potentially that sector of the, the travel market will be reasonably resilient because having the, the working holiday visa does give people an opportunity to travel even if they don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. so maybe something for you to consider yeah unfortunately americans can't do a working holiday in japan which is right. really unfortunate because i would have definitely taken advantage of that and it's strange because at least in my experience i'm from a relatively small and insular in terms of travel community but mm-hmm. people just don't hear about working holiday visas and going abroad to work on those visas so I wonder if it's more of a publicity issue in at least middle America maybe on the coast it's different yeah no good good point obviously I haven't done very much research into um your situation we maybe we can do do a a, a separate podcast Mm -hmm. about that (laughs) but um yeah yeah I I, it it reminds me of, of a conversation I had with somebody from middle of Canada and they they basically said something very similar to you and definitely a challenge worth investigating what really interests me a little bit in in the United States is quite and I don't know whether you've done a bit of research or not but in in the last 20 years or so the percentage of Americans who have passports have really increased quite a lot um even to a stage where you know, if you're looking at today, you've got a higher percentage of Americans with a passport compared to the Japanese, which people may, may find it hard to believe given, you know, what, what people's images of Americans and Japanese are. But maybe perhaps part of the increase in the percentage of Americans with passports would be the millennial generation and, and the, the wanderlust that, you know, you talked about. Yeah, I'm sure that has a big influence on that. It's also just interesting to me that Americans now have a higher percentage just given how large America is, how many more options we have to travel domestically. Domestically. Yeah. Mm. Yes. yes. Japan. That's just interesting to me because Japan has relatively easy access to so many inexpensive places to travel that are still very interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think I suppose, you know, we're starting to build this jigsaw puzzle, so to speak. And while absolutely what you're saying is correct, that Japan's a relatively small country. They're quite close to other countries. It's easy, you know, from some in any part of Japan to fly to China or, or Hawaii or Korea. But, you know, why, why is the um, percentage of Japanese with passports not gone up so much um you know is is 
Uh, I suppose some people might speculate that the lost decades got something to do with it, but mm-hmm. you, you definitely get in, in Japan a high percentage of younger people with, with passports. It's, it's the older people who have a lower take-up of passports, and which makes my hypothesis quite complex because, you know, the, the older people are the ones who have more money and, you know, they grew up in, in a booming period. But I think the overlay for Japan is often people's confidence in speaking English abroad, mm. which, which makes it harder for people in the older generation to, to, to go. While obviously in America, everybody speaks English. So, you know, that, that's not a barrier. Yeah, we definitely have that benefit where our primary language is the language that if somebody speaks a second language, odds are that it's going to be some sort of English or something similar to that. So, yeah, it's definitely a big advantage when you're traveling to have English as your first language, unfortunately. Definitely, definitely. And, and I think added, I mean, it's, it's, it's not unique to America, but given... Americans come from all different parts of the world. Uh, I know maybe from Europe, but because there is that melting pot, for want of a better word, then I think Americans are, are quite are more used to being with people from different backgrounds. So, so that makes it, it gives them more confidence when, uh, that, that when they're traveling that, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're used to meeting people with different backgrounds, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, Japan's <laughs> Yes, yes, yeah, and and Japan, especially you know, the older generation, they they're a lot more monocultural, for what a better word. I, I appreciate you know it's a bit of a generalisation, but you know we, it's you know the Japanese society is quite different in that way. So then, going back to what you were saying before about what demographic you think is going to be traveling they'll probably be young because of that generational wanderlust that seems unique to the younger generation in some ways but then also having some um, yes yeah and especially china and to some extent japan too Mm -hmm. and then also having the means to do that so which countries do you see having the biggest opportunities where those two things overlap yes yeah that's a really good question I, i think the limited research I've done today suggests countries like uh, Vietnam would be a good example. So um, a country that, that's, you know, doing very well economically compared to before. Again, they, like Japan, they came out of a war. And then, you know, obviously you've got this post-war recovery and boom and this sense of optimism. So, and, you know, in Vietnam there's, there's a combination of, of state-run and market-run businesses. So it gives uh, younger people opportunity to to um, succeed and to generate the wealth they need to, to travel. So, and so Vietnam is a good example where you've got a combination of young people wanting to travel and having the, the financial means to do so and having that optimistic outlook to, to to open the wallets and to discover other places other places that i had in mind probably which i haven't done as much research on is is ireland again you know a country that's opening up and having a, a bit of a boom recently and you know definitely impacting the younger people there australia to some extent 
we've um, until this year we we haven't had a recession for almost twenty years, or actually more than twenty years. So mm -hmm. definitely, people who've grown up in that time and never experienced a, a recession, we've seen you know Australian travel to to other countries increase. I suppose Australia is a little bit unique because it's it's so far away from everywhere else. It's not that it stops Australians from traveling overseas; it almost makes it the other way around. It gives them that that extra level of fascination. So um, it's almost like a rite of passage to, to travel to younger people. So definitely Australia could be a country in that category. Other places that could be, which I haven't looked into, places like Poland and the the Baltic states. Again, in a situation where you know the economies. Now, until recently have been doing really well, a lot of opportunities for young people. They are probably some of the, the um, places that, that I would look into as to sources of, of increasing outbound travel and definitely for businesses in the tourism industry in Japan, you know, for them to build good relationships with these countries, they, they can really tap into that market for people wanting to go from those countries into Japan, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think having more travelers from those countries, maybe they're not as cohesive in terms of culture, but do you think that will have an impact on how Japan offers um, services to tourists? Do you see any changes there because of this change in demographic? I might just clarify the question. When you mean the change in demographic, as in more young people who are willing to travel, is that what you mean, or right. something else? Um, young people from these specific countries, like Australia, Poland, Norway, Ireland, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think again, you know, at the risk of generalising a little bit, I suppose it, it's kind of like looking at each of those countries and what is their historical experience with travel so what I'm, I might use Australia as an example that, that might be a bit easier is, is I think because of Australia even though we've seen a real growth in people traveling from Australia to, to other countries we, we also know that the Australian experience of travel is is quite in my mind quite mature and what, what I mean is is often a lot of this current generation, their parents have also travelled. So, you know, whether they were spending two years in London and working there or some other country, it's it's now the second or third generation that's travelling. It's not just the first generation. While, while in, in places like Vietnam and China, to some extent, it's almost the first generation that's travelling. So if, if you're looking at a travel maturity profile, because countries that, a little bit more mature on, on that path, they would probably expect slightly different or more more sophisticated experiences compared to people who who are travelling in in their first generation in the, in their history. I don't know if I've kind of explained myself. No, that's very interesting to me. I never thought about how people might behave differently being first generation travellers versus second generation travellers. Yeah, yeah. So um, one example i would i don't know if this is a good example or not but i'll, I'll, I'll try and explain it like when, when i was in in indonesia and the the manager in indonesia took me around to a museum and i saw a lot of 
young people there. They seem more like what I call first generation. And they weren't that interested in the museum itself. They were probably more interested of taking photos of themselves with the museum in the background. So it was almost like a social activity rather than learning about what's in the museum. But I suppose somebody who's probably further down that maturity path would be, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a novelty that I just want to take lots of photos. It's, it's about uh, learning a bit more about what's actually in the museum and, and taking a guided tour and asking the curator lots of questions about the exhibition because they, they're further down the maturity profile and they, they expect a more in-depth travel experience while you know somebody who's more first generation they would be just happy to go there and take photos because they want to share with their friends that hey I you know I can travel now I can do this so understanding what people's motivations are for traveling or what they need in a travel experience is is important and if you were to differentiate between those two market segments then you'll probably offer slightly different products yeah that's very interesting so it sounds like first generation travelers might be more interested in i don't know how to say it other than just checking boxes on what yeah, to do lists yeah. versus yes. second generations morely want to learn they want to be changed by the experience and they want to have more of a more of an intimate experience with the country yeah exactly yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. So it'll be interesting to see how they balance it because they'll be having new travellers coming in from both demographics. So that'll be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's almost... And I think some, some destinations are quite good at it. So, you know, in the sense that, you know, some destinations they might cater for I'll use a different example. Some destinations, they'll, they'll cater for families, they'll cater for young adults, they'll cater for older adults, they'll cater for young kids. So, you know, how do, you know, how does a destination uh, or, or attraction offer something so someone from each of those age groups can still get something out of it? Obviously, assuming that, you know, that destination wants to target all of those demographics. I know some some you know, destinations may only want to target one demographic, but if you want to target multiple demographics, then, you know, the challenge is how do you offer your product at different levels? I, I mean, I, I, in, another example that, that might be helpful is, you know, if, if you were to go to a museum and, and you were to bring somebody from, somebody who's 12 years old or six years old and, how do they get entertained? Because often, you know, when you go to a museum, you, you get, you know, there's the special activities for children, or there's a children's program, and then there's, there's the curated tour, or there's the meet the artist interview. So, you know, you, you can see some art galleries and museums really good at catering for different market segments. Mm-hmm. So then, given the current situation, Assuming that things aren't resolved very quickly, that things um, start to get better in a more slow way, how do you think that will impact where people travel if they decide to go to Japan? You know, good, good question. And I think um, 
I know that the question on everybody's lips is, you know, when when will this vaccine come out and mm-hmm. you know, will people take it and will people travel before the vaccine or will they, they travel afterwards or they'll wait until the whole world gets a vaccine and they travel and so I mean all that comes into play as to people's perception of safety but the information that I, I gleaned from the research in China was that they talked a lot about targeting places that are less crowded for probably safety reasons uh, and or health reasons so you know a lot of the, the nature tourism or going to more remote places away from the, the major cities is, is one theme that came out um, another theme that came out was thinking about traveling with families more so people who in, in a Chinese survey, they talked about travellers born in the 1990s and, and most of them are either single or married with no kids. So, um, you know, previously they, they may just travel by themselves, but now with what has happened, you know, they, it's kind of made them see the fragility of life a little bit more. And so part of it is about potentially spending holidays with, with you know with their parents taking their parents on holidays and you know having more of the family holidays so that's that's another theme that came out in that survey the the other one that i looked at is self-driving holidays so you know instead of uh catching public transport maybe hiring a, a car or a camp van and doing something off the beaten track and having more control as to how you get from A to B. So they're probably the three things that particularly struck me. And obviously this is just a guess, but do you think that these changes will be more long lasting or do you think they'll fade along with the actual problems with the pandemic? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, I think, it, it's a bit like a pendulum in my mind. So obviously we've swung a long way um, towards the safety end of the pendulum and, and people wanting to um, go to places that are less crowded and the self-driving tours is is reflection of that. But um, the I think the pendulum will swing back the other way. So, you know, we will see recovery and, and traveling to, to major cities as well, even though they're, they're crowded. I mean, hopefully, as people's perception of safety, or also more the, the health aspect of safety uh, returns in the, the more crowded areas, then I do see people coming back uh, to the major cities. Um, definitely, I think people who going to Japan the first time, whether they, you know, they're the first generation travellers or the second generation travellers. I mean, if it's their first time in Japan, often there's there's a little bit of that checkbox ticking exercise mm-hmm. where you, know, you want to go to the Golden Temple in Kyoto and you want to go to Hiroshima. So, I mean, those places will, will have lasting attraction. It's just, you know, when when does the pendulum swing back so that people always have a desire to go, but it's like, when is it 
safe from a health perspective to go is kind of the, the underlying question, given that the, 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 um, the attraction of those places is still there in my mind. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard people where I live, at least, a little bit worried about people being nervous long-term about crowds, kind of, I don't know mm -hmm. how to, I'm not making light of mental illness, but it almost sounded like a collective PTSD surrounding experience with the yes. virus yes. but i wonder how much of that is just because my part of my little part of the world hasn't had an experience with a virus before or a pandemic in the same sort of way in working memory but i think that people are a little bit more resilient looking at parts of the world that have dealt with it before and come back i'm a little bit more optimistic about that yeah, and that's, that's a good point. I, I know I, I used the, the analogy earlier about first and second generation, but you, you almost could always apply it to, you know, first and, generation, first and second generation travellers and first and generation exposure to, to a virus. So mm -hmm. you, you see in East Asia, you know, countries like Korea and, and China having been exposed to SARS and, and other viruses, um, obviously they're, they're a lot more mature in, in being able to deal with it now and so therefore maybe part of it could be the country has dealt with it before you can go through this again and so that gives the people a little bit more resilience or optimism that they can see through the light of the tunnel a little bit better than, than countries that have never experienced a, you know this kind of situation or you know a virus outbreak you know in, in, in a generation so do you see any ways that this situation will change travel in the long term versus just the short term? Yeah, I'm probably too early to draw too much conclusions about the long term. I think, yeah, and, 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 and to be honest, most of my review and, and studies have been more short to medium term thinking mm -hmm. things like, you know, things that I talked about about more remote travel but the other thing that came out was potentially people wanting to take direct flights rather than indirect flights what I mean is you know if, if you were going from Australia to Japan for example you can either take a direct flight from Australia to Japan or you can take a flight via Singapore or, or Manila or some other country given the way the world has fractured a bit recently where you know different countries will impose lockdowns and one way to minimize the risk of lockdowns is not fly through a third country because if a third country is locked down then you can't get to your end destination and you know you know the more countries you go through the more chances of you potentially catching a virus or having a, a complication so that, that's probably a, a short to medium term thing that I see in, in the aviation space. Long term, I suppose part of me is hoping there's a change for the better. For the better. What, what I mean is people being a little bit more purposeful in their travel. So the family scenario that I talked about earlier is, is the example that, you know, it's, it's not just about going to another country and ticking off the boxes. It's like if, if you feel since the pandemic that you know life is a little bit fragile and you want to spend more time with your family then you know how do we weave that purpose of traveling as not just to go to a second country or a new country but also 
building relationships that you have with your family. So possibly that that's a positive change for the future in the sense of having more purposeful travel. But um, time will tell whether that will um, continue or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to know what's going to happen in the long term, especially given all the things that have been happening in the short term lately, but still yes. interesting to think about. So then related to all of these potential changes, do you see any hidden opportunities for entrepreneurs that could come out of this? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I think and something that Japan Travel has been working on a little bit is, is the, the self-driving uh, holidays that I talked about earlier so and especially if you if if we talk about that family theme again so potentially what what could be a growth area in japan is is camper vans so uh, i know traditionally people who, who go to japan especially first or second time they will get a rail pass they'll get a bullet train they go from tokyo to kyoto they'll tick off the you know the key attractions but now, you know, you're going to see more people wanting to self-drive, especially people who've been to Japan before and, you know, they, they have a greater level of confidence in, in driving on Japanese roads. So, and if they're going to bring their family or bring young kids, then um, a camper van is, you know, a, quite a good solution for them um, in the sense that, you know, they, they can... They, they basically pack once they can, you know, if they bring the kids, they, they bring their pram and um, all, all sorts of other equipment. They just put on the, the camper van and then travel around Japan at their own timing and choose destinations that you can't reach on a bullet train. So I definitely think that kind of travel product has potential as, as one example. Yeah, just from what I've seen in the States, I can definitely see that being a big trend in Japan as well. Because all of a sudden, yeah. everybody's buying camping gear. Everybody wants a van <laughs> that they can travel. Yeah, it's just, it's super interesting. Yeah, and and I don't know how much of it is, is because in, in the United States, with, with camper vans, you know, you... you, you you know, you're not following a train timetable. You, you know, you, you're in control for when and how long you spend in a certain place. And, and also the, the other aspect of, of more nature-based tourism. So then do you see Japanese culture having an impact on Japan's ability to recover since it's an economy that relies so heavily on tourism? Like, for example, I know that from my conversation with Sebastian earlier, Japanese omotenashi can be a little bit more prescriptive in some ways, preemptively meeting people's needs in a way that may not actually meet needs of a foreigner, for example. Do you see Japanese culture causing any complications for being able to adapt? No, you've raised a really good point because Omotenashi has... I mean, traditionally catered for the Japanese domestic market. And so, you know, what they value would be different to what a foreigner would value um, in some instances. So definitely, even though it's, 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 it's a really special part of the Japanese culture, it, again, because it is a little bit, it can be prescriptive, that that can be a challenge. 
Yeah, it's it's a bit of a two-edged sword, in my opinion. So I think even though what the Japanese tourism operator, whether it's a real car or a restaurant or something else, even though there's sometimes a mismatch, for want a better word, between what they're offering and what what the um, the visitor wants, it depends on whether the visitor is annoyed by it or fascinated by it because it can cut both ways. Because I think, especially for somebody who's a little bit more mature in, in, in their travel outlook, they don't mind that mismatch because it's part of the fascination of going in that country. So for certain parts of the market, they, it, it's okay. And for other parts of the market, it could be a bit of a barrier. So yeah, I think Omotenashi could, could be a bit of a double-edged sword, in my opinion. That makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see how it works out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it also depends a little bit on, on you know, where you go and what kind of accommodation or, or restaurant you go to, whether you, you go to the more formal, five-star, traditional ryokans or you, you, you go to a youth hostel that, that is very experienced with, with um, serving foreigners, then the, the, the way Omate Nashi manifests itself will be very different in those two situations. So, you know, you, you could have, as you alluded to earlier, you know, the, the more formal prescriptive forms of Omate Nashi, which could, could be the case in some of the more traditional inns and restaurants on one extreme and then the other end where you have, you know, like the youth hostel or, or something like that founded by a person who's a Japanese person who's travelled a lot overseas, very comfortable with foreigners, understand what they want, and their offering is, is a lot more in sync with what the visitors used to back in your home country. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's many layers of Motenaki depending on which, which part of the market you, or what, well, you know, whether you go to a traditional product or something a little bit more contemporary. So then, do you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown in Japan because of culture and cultural differences? Yeah, I'm thinking about one or two examples. And sometimes the breakdown... Uh, leads to a, a good outcome and sometimes it doesn't. So it's, it's not necessarily uh, a negative in that sense. I, I remember a time I was in, in, in Okinawa and I was in a very remote island. I went to this place to eat Okinawa soba. It was a family-run restaurant, um, basically. Mum and Dad ran the restaurant. Uh, and then I sat down at the counter, we started talking and I told her, you know, my background in Japan travel and how I wanted to promote Japan. And then um, obviously I was really interested in what she had to say and she realised I was really interested and I, I learned a lot about her, her background, how her husband lost his leg in the war when, you know, he's been running his restaurant I was saying. So... Uh, I got to learn a lot about the family almost to the extent 
where at the end of the meal, I felt like I was part of the family and, you know, she felt that way. And at that point I was actually full for lunch, but she went to the kitchen and, and brought out this plate of fish, um, beautifully cooked fish and said, Oh, you know, you can have it. It's free. And, um, and I said, no, 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 I'm full. I can't, can't eat anymore. And, but, but you know, I, I think the, I wouldn't call it a breakdown, but the, the difference in, in what, what she was trying to do and what, what my reaction was shown, there was a little bit difference in perspective. She was just trying to be uh, loving and welcoming and inclusive and say, you know, part of the family, you, you, you know, here's some fish, you know, that's free because, you know, you're part of the in-group. And me thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm full from lunch. I don't need to eat anymore. So that might be an example of a communication difference, but um, hard to say whether it's unique to Japan, but it, it, it's, it's a story that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, love that story. Oh, yeah, good, good. Yeah, it's, and, and these are the stories you, you, know, you, you remember when you go home, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I was just going to say, I love that story because it shows that it's not always like this big dramatic, oh, ha, 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 silly foreigner doing something weird mm-hmm. that everybody just laughs at. It's, it's just these yeah. small little disconnects that can have an influence on how things pan out, too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, yeah, it, it, the, the communication difference can come from one side or the other. Or both. <laughs> yeah. The other example I had was probably a little bit more work-related. And, again, not sure it's unique to Japan, but as part of my role in Japan travel, I've, I've done a lot of specialisation in, in handicraft, so it, it really spoke to me partly, and this is really, it's a bit of a long story, um, Partly because I, I had had a connection with uh, Japanese handicrafts after we got married, um, we ended up buying an antique uh, kimono chest, and it was from Kyoto. It was a hundred years old. I'm actually leaning on this chest as we speak. Um, I can see all the cracks in the uh, chest, you know, from the patina of several generations using the kimono chest, and part of me looked at the chest and thought, you know, what if I did a family tree trace on this chest and, you know, try to find out the other generations that use this chest and what were their stories? So given, you know, this is a chest that takes pride of place in the house, it, it kind of piqued my interest. So I, after a lot of research, I went to the um, Handicrafts Association in Kyoto. I met there. President, he took me to a place where they make kimono chests for the imperial family. Um, I was able to go and see, you know, the stencils they used 70 years ago to make uh, patterns on the kimono chest. And I was able to see other kimono chests that looked like the one that I had in my house. And I was able to see you know, how people spend months polishing, sanding, you know, very specialised art forms, which really resonated with me because I was kind of coming home to the, the home of the kimono chest. 
And so, and, and, and I suppose that, that that's probably an example of, of having purpose and travel is, is, is to do something like that. And what it kind of spoke to me was, you know, as, as I was speaking to the, the president of the Handicrafts Association was that these handicrafts, they pass from generation to generation. And, you know, at the moment, some of these handicrafts, they're at the risk of dying out because they don't have enough young people uh, taking up as apprentices to learn this craft. So I ended up writing a few articles about these handicrafts just partly because I want to share my story and secondly, hopefully that other people will be interested in and replicate my experiences and maybe, you know, buy something for themselves, whether it's a kimono chest or something else, so that we can support the handicraft story. So this is this is just background to, to my main mm-hmm. point, interestingly, um, which is about differences in communication. So I met this person. I told him I was really keen to promote handicrafts. Um, he, you know, volunteered a lot of his time promoting it as well. So he thought, you know, we had that in common, which we did. I think um, where the disconnect happened was, you know, one day a few years down the track, he said, oh, there's this opportunity for me to appear on, on a TV or, or radio and, and do an interview and talk about some of the stuff that I've done. And I was really keen to go, but I, I, I said to him, I, I also want to use that interview to talk about Japan travel. But when I said that to him, he, he, was, he was a little bit offended that he thought I was being very pushy and pushing my business. So, and, and it, it was weird that this came across because, you know, for so many years we, we got on really well and, you know, we, we kind of feed off each other. But I suppose he, he, he just had this perception that, oh, I'm just giving up my time voluntarily and, like, you know, I did, didn't expect anything in return. I, I mean, it is largely that, but I, I know I, I need to to grow uh, Japan travel as well. So, you know, I wanted to be upfront about it, but maybe he, he took it the wrong way. So he didn't end up getting me on that interview. So... Yeah, so I don't know whether that, that's an age difference or, or cultural difference or, you know, just difference in, in expectations, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, too, because you don't always know why things don't work out. Even when you get more experience, sometimes it's still a mystery. Yes. Because sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's personality, sometimes you just don't know. <laughs> mm, that's right, that's right. And, uh, and And unfortunately, sometimes you... You never know, and sometimes they they'll be more upfront in, in explaining to you why there was this difference, so you can learn from it. So yeah, some things remain a mystery. So then, if you were talking to somebody who's going to Japan for business for the first time, and you only had enough time to teach them one thing about the country or the culture, what would you tell them? The obvious one would, would be to to get lots of business cards. So business cards are very big in japan so you, you, you're not actually a person unless you have a card um so you know when you give them their card they'll study it 
um, they take it quite seriously. So they will always have lots of business cards. So if you, I mean, if you don't, you know, there's many a time when I've actually ran out of business cards, which is quite embarrassing. But yeah, but then I end up, you know, scribbling my name and 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 phone number on a piece of paper and giving it to them. Not not exactly the best compromise, but it's sometimes better than nothing. And especially if, if you know you don't speak Japanese and that the English is not great, having the business card is, is a good way for them to remember who you are. So definitely, I would recommend bring lots of business cards and like good quality ones, not you know cheap ones. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's something I hear a lot that I feel like can easily fall through the cracks if you're not careful, especially because in the States, at least, it's important to have business cards, but you just don't need that many of them. You don't need nearly as many of them mm-hmm. as you do when you're in Japan. So yes. if you think you have enough, you don't. Go get some more. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really learned a lot too, which I'm always happy about. But is there anything you'd like to tell my audience before we leave? Yes, yes, yes. No, thank you for the reminder. And I will do a plug, so I'm hoping that you're okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. Setting our expectations here is, is um, I think one of the things that, that helped me a lot with Japan travel is, is having a, a good network of, of mentors and people who share the same sense of purpose as you. So Japan travel wouldn't be where it is today without it. And one of the organisations that did give us a bit of a leg up early on is, is um, a magazine called Metropolis, which is um, a magazine you can get in Tokyo, um, mainly expats and tourists read it, but given the current situation, that market's really dried up to the extent that they're having a, a fundraising round, um, something like GoFundMe, for want of a better word, to keep the magazine going. So if you are on LinkedIn, you can look up Metropolis and he'll tell you all about their story. So I do suggest you look at that. I, I think Metropolis has you know, been in, in Tokyo for such a long time and I think a lot of expats and tourists have got a really big benefit from them being there opening doors for visitors and, you know, uh, uncovering some of the mystique in Japan. So um, I think, you know, as, as part of me paying them back for, you know, all the work that they've done for the community, uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely good for, for us to support them at this time, as well as any, any other, you know, mentors or networks that, that you have in Japan to help you know, people settle in, especially people who, who are moving there to, to live. So um, do give them a look. Um, yeah, that's probably one thing I'd like to add. Yeah, Thanks. we'll put a link to that in the description of the episode as well. Otherwise, like he said, you can just probably look it up on LinkedIn and find the information you need there. Yes, Metropolis Magazine. Yep. Metropolis Magazine. Sure. All sure. right. Anything else before we sign off for the day? No, no, no. I think there's plenty of topics we can probably cover in another mm-hmm. round, but uh, let's do that next time. 
Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, I'll definitely want to have you on again in the future to talk about other interesting topics in Japan. But for now, I guess that we'll have to say bye. Yes, thank you. Goodbye and have a, have a good day. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to check out the articles he referenced about his travels in Japan, as well as to learn more about the magazine Metropolis and see what you can do to support that important resource for expats in Japan and Japanophiles abroad. Please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you'd like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!